The scripture reading. The scripture reading for today is Romans 3, verses 9 through 26. Listen now to the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of ass, the venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, <clears throat> welcome to our service. For those of you who are uh, visiting or new, um, we are working ourselves through a series of sermons um, based on the New City Catechism. And we are now on question 13. And so uh, we like to begin the service, the teaching time, uh, by reviewing. And so, uh, again, I want to encourage those of you who have been doing your homework and memorizing to recite with your eyes closed. Uh, those of you who are new or who have not, um, if you just read along and uh, learn them in the coming weeks, that would be great. All right, let's begin. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Question two, what is God? Question three, how many persons are there in God? Question four, how and why did God create us? What else did God create? Question six, how can we glorify God? Question seven, what does the law of God require? Question eight, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments?
All right, very good. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to skip the next four questions, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Um, if you want, some of you may have a personality type where you want to be complete. And so if you want to learn those on your own, you're, of course, welcome to do that. But we are not going to do questions 9, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, those four questions basically uh, review the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And so, um, you know, we've spent 10 weeks on it. And, and the questions, I don't think they're particularly, um, they don't add a whole lot to what we've already learned. And so we're going to skip those four questions. And we're going to go now to question number uh, 13. And just as a warning for, for those of you um, who may not be uh, familiar with what we're doing, um, the next several weeks, um, the sermons and the teaching is going to be a little bit hard because we're going to be talking about sin and law. So I'm going to be really be focusing the majority of the teaching on the bad news. <laughs> okay, so good news is coming. The gospel is coming, but, uh, you know, if, if, if you're only here today and you're not here for, like, you might just go away feeling really bad. So just fair warning. All right, so question 13. Let's, uh, put, can we get that? Is, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? So we've been looking at all these laws, and particularly the Ten Commandments. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Answer, together. Since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. And so that's uh, the question we want to uh, consider together today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word and an opportunity to hear your word and to hear about the law and to discover and to acknowledge that we cannot, we cannot keep your law, what you have called us to do. So help us to learn what that means for us and to discover how you have found a way out of our predicament. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in the reading today, you heard Paul reminding us, quoting loosely from a variety of passages from the Bible, mostly from the Psalms, that everyone is under sin, verses 9 through 18. Not one is free from sin. Everyone is under sin. And not only is everyone under sin, but the, the language that he uses, you know, it's like every part of you is also under sin, right? Your throat, your tongue, your feet, your mouth. I mean, every one of us and every part of every one of us is under sin. And it's not just that Paul is, you know, handpicking a few verses here and there that he strings together to make his argument. Um, every biblical story really is about human failure and God's rescue. I mean, that's the point of the scriptures. Even the people that we look up to, these sort of giants of the faith, what's remarkable about them is not that they were so strong. I mean, they were all broken and frail. What's remarkable about them, and the reason we look to them in faith, is because they trusted God despite their weakness. In their fallenness, they looked to God. They realized their guilt. They trusted God to deliver them. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. You know, we spent 10 weeks talking about the Decalogue, about the law, 
the ten words of God, a, a way to live. And a few of you during those weeks uh, commented to me that those sermons, those messages were very difficult to hear, that they were very, very hard. Uh, it made you realize, like, man, this is, this is hard. Like, I can't do this. I can't follow these commandments, right? It, it just reminded you of um, how impossible it is to obey God's word. And, and that's good. I mean, that means I did my job, right? That's the point. That's the point of the law. That's the purpose of the law as highlighted by the reformers. It reminds us, it, it holds up a mirror to our faces and lets us see our fallenness, our ugliness, our brokenness, that we are incapable of being the kind of people we think we ought to be or even want to be. Uh, we saw especially last week uh, in, in the command against coveting that, that that is something that we all have. That we might excuse ourselves from, you know, I've never killed anyone, so I've not, you know, murdered anyone. I've not broken that commandment. But none of us can say uh, with purity of heart that I've never coveted anything. And so the law, the Decalogue, points to the fact that we are simply incapable of obeying the law. We cannot. Every one of us and every part of us is under sin. And Paul says, in light of this, in light of God's judgment, therefore, every mouth, he says, must be stopped or silenced. I found that an interesting phrase because uh, in those days, um, in a court of law, you were supposed to put your hand over your mouth as an indication of being silent when you had finished defending yourself uh, in a trial, right? So maybe you're accused of something and you try to uh, present your evidence, and then when you were done, you know, I'm going to be silent now because I've made my case. You know, the, the, I guess the, the defense rests, that kind of thing. Um, but sometimes people knew they were guilty. The judge knew you were guilty. Everyone in the courtroom knew you were guilty, but you would just keep talking, right? You try to make up an excuse for why you did it and the circumstantial, you know, reasons, and you just, like, just keep talking and talking, and the court would just, just slap you to say, shut up. Like, we, we know you're guilty. You need to be silent now. That's enough. Right? I mean, that's what they did to Jesus and to Paul. Now, they did it wrongly, but that was their position, right? You're guilty. There's nothing you can say that is going to change our minds. All you really need to do is just, just admit your guilt and be quiet. And that's what Paul says here, that every mouth must be silenced. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. That is what he means, is until you come to the point where you simply acknowledge your guilt and that's it. You have no excuse. You have no defense. And you're simply quiet. Until you recognize and admit your guilt, there can be no rescue. There is no need for rescue without the admission of guilt. And Paul says that the law brings consciousness or awareness of our sin and of our need. And that's what the law is good for. And so, uh, again, in the coming weeks, I want to talk about how the law does that and what sin is and, and, and so on. Um, but that's for, I'm going to focus on something a little bit different today. And I want to be very clear here today that 
I'm not talking today primarily in terms of keeping the law. I'm not talking about being good or being virtuous. That is not, that is not what I'm talking about. That is not what Paul is talking about. Sin for the Christian is not primarily a question of morality. It is not about being a more ethical or moral person. Um, certainly our society, that's what is important to uh, our laws, uh, for our culture, um, immorality and crime. That's the focus or that's the point of sin, right? But the Christian understanding of the breaking of the law is the symptoms of sin and not sin itself. So for us, the question isn't about becoming more virtuous. It's something deeper than that. Luke Timothy Johnson says this, the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. The opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. For the Christian, sin is a spiritual problem more than it is a moral problem. So I want you, you have to understand this. The, the aim of Christian teaching, all the Christian education we're doing with, with your kids right now, we're not trying to make them into good people. Now, we hope that that is a natural consequence of what we're doing, but the primary aim of our education of Christian theology is that it, we are not trying to produce nice kids. Again, we hope they become that. We want... We don't want them to lie to you. We want them to honor you. We, we don't want them to steal and, and all of that. Yes. But what we're really trying to do is to help them realize that they're sinners. Every one of us. As cute as they are, they're sinners. And to get to the point where they can acknowledge it and realize that, and then, I and mean, that's not the end of the story. And from that, to recognize their need of saving, their need of a savior, and then come to a place where they can place their trust in the God who loved them and gave his only son for them. That's what we're trying to do with your kids and, and with us here today. And that's what we're trying to get at, at the root of the problem of the human crisis, of this sin. And I know that uh, in the 21st century, uh, in this country, that this is an almost impossible message for people to hear. It's an, it's an almost impossible message for people to digest. Um, Alan Mann in his book, Atonement for a Sinless Society, says that Western culture no longer has a meaningful concept of sin and guilt. People t- today see themselves as basically good and victims of economic, political, and social institutions. Um, that really struck me, right? That people see themselves today as basically good and as victims of economic, political, and social institutions. So I think those are the two counts on which it is very difficult for people to understand orthodox, historical, Christian teaching. That we are sinners and that we are not able to keep the law of God. First, we're told, and people generally believe, that people are good, basically good, right? Yes, we have aberrations of people doing unspeakable evil, 
But you know, generally people are, they're decent or they're, they're okay. Uh, I grew up, as many of you did, um, as we, many of us continue to do, uh, in an Oprah generation. Uh, we've been raised and we are raising our children on self-help, on self-esteem, self-promotion, but the self. And so it's very hard for people to come to a place where they admit or to recognize that I'm a sinner and in need of a savior, right? We tell our children, even in the church, how good they are, not how much they are a sinner in fear of maybe you know, damaging their psyche or something. It's the, it's the participation trophy method of parenting, right? You're not good, but here's a trophy for showing up. And the thing is, you know, kids know. Kids know that that's not right. They know it's not true that everyone is equal or that everyone is a winner or that everyone is good. I mean, they know this. Uh, I remember when my kids were uh, very young, when they were five, um, and, uh, you know, we, like most parents, we had them sign up for, uh, you know, soccer, right? Um, and I remember the, the kids, when they're five and they're, you know, running around, they had a policy in the league where they would not keep score. You don't keep score. You play for like 20 minutes, or, but you don't keep score because we don't want the kids to feel discouraged like they're losers or, you know, they didn't win. So no score was kept because we want the kids just to have fun, to, to enjoy the game and, and learn, you know, playing with others and, and all of that. Now, again, I think that, that those, are good, those are good sentiments to have uh, for the children. Um, but it's, it's just a lie. Every parent was keeping score. I can tell you, I was keeping score. <laughs> and every kid was keeping score. So we were just lying to each other. Hey, score doesn't matter. They know. They know the score. They knew who was good and who was getting a participation trophy. And so we're just lying. And, and, but we need to speak the truth and to speak that truth in love. You are not going to play professional soccer. That's the truth. I told my kids that. But that's not the, that's not the whole story. You can still do a lot of other great things with your life. There are a lot of other things you can do. But this isn't it. I think that's a much better truth to hear in the long run. Right? You can explain to your children and to yourself the reason that you struggle, the reason that you're trying to lie to me or that you're trying to cheat on a test or that you're you know, tempted to steal something or, or punch your sister, it's because you're a sinner. It's as simple as that. It's your nature that is driving you toward those actions. And you're not evil. Right? Everyone is the same. Everyone feels what you're feeling. Every single one. Now, again, that's not the whole story. There's more. But we have to begin there. Without that beginning, there can be no good news following. Secondly, we tell ourselves that we are victims of economic, political, and social institutions. That we are oppressed by you know, racism, by sexism, by lookism, right, whatever, 
And some of it is real. Some of it is very real. There are many damaged and hurt people today, of course, and sometimes damaged by the pain inflicted by the church. So we have to acknowledge that. Uh, I heard someone say that what people need to hear in, in churches today is not the message of repent, you are a sinner, but rather you are loved and that healing is possible because of how much damage they've taken on over the years where they were you know, just um, victims of oppression and abuse and they need to hear a word of healing. And again, I, I understand that and that, that is absolutely true. Um, but to lay claim to victimhood for all of our failings or to blame all of our shortcomings and evil tendencies to our parents or to the uh, institutions of our society is also then to deny any real or meaningful choices or freedoms that we have about our lives. And so I think against these, these half-truths and lies, Bible offers us and makes a very different kind of claim about reality, about who we are. God created us to love and to glorify him and to enjoy a, a flourishing community with others. But when Adam and Eve, the, the first human beings, the representatives of humanity, when they sinned, through pride or I think perhaps through coveting of, of wanting to be like God, of, of, through idolatry, when they, when they sinned and disobeyed or distrusted God's word, our human capacity to obey God's word was lost. And every one of us since then, we've inherited that. We, we are also in that same family. And we cannot, we cannot, keep God's law. We are now in a condition of spiritual rebellion, bondage, blindness, and as the Bible says, you are spiritually dead and incapable of obeying and loving God. Again, the Bible is very clear, it is repeatedly clear on this point, that all of humanity is in the same boat, that none of us can keep the law. One of the ways that theologians talk about this is with the term uh, total depravity in describing the human condition. Total depravity uh, doesn't mean that you are totally and absolutely 100% evil in your makeup, but that from birth to death, your natural inclination is towards sin and that every facet of your being has been infected by sin. Your desires, your attitudes, your actions, your imagination. All of it has been infected by sin. Now, Paul's argument is very, very clear. He says, apart, therefore, from the saving work and the righteousness of God, we have no hope. Right? We are saved solely through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Because sin infects every aspect of our being. And apart from God, none of us can choose to not sin. Or if you choose to not sin, you are unable to accomplish that. You have no power to fulfill that wish. Otherwise, we would not need grace. And Paul, against all these other people over the centuries, uh, argues that this absolute need for the grace of God because of our fallenness. 
Um, because over the centuries now, since Paul's day, during Paul's day, and all through, even right up to today, and maybe even more so today, uh, people have tried to argue, tried to complement humanity by saying, no, no, humanity can at least add something to our salvation. In the early 5th century, for example, uh, there was a theologian named Pelagius who famously challenged uh, another theologian, St. Augustine, on this particular point. And then in the 16th century, there was a, a battle between uh, Martin Luther and his position on the bondage of the hum- human will against Erasmus, the humanist, who argued for the freedom of the will. And then after that, there was a, another round of arguments between uh, the followers of Calvin and the followers of uh, Arminius and later the Methodists, right? And, and today, there are many, many Christians today uh, who hold this Pelagian or semi-Pelagian view. Now, you probably, I know, other than a few people here, you, you don't care about these words and these, these labels. Uh, but but I, want you to, I want you to understand this very old and familiar argument. Because despite what Paul writes, some people have thought and argued that you are capable, right? You have the freedom to not sin. That you are not doomed to sin. That you have a choice and you can choose to not sin. Because they argue that it's unfair for God to demand something that you are incapable of accomplishing. Why would give you a law that, you, that God knew that you could not keep? That's not fair. That doesn't make sense. So we must have the power to, to obey God, but we simply choose not to. And so sin is not inherent in us, only it's when we make those choices to disobey God that that, that is sin. That we are not, it's not inevitable that we sin, or that we're not doomed to a life of sin. That's the argument that they make, right? That we can choose to be good and obedient to God. But this is really to, to misunderstand the fundamental nature of sin and I would argue just, just human nature and human experience, right? As we saw earlier, sin is not simply a deliberate act of, debi- of disobedience or of breaking the law. It is failure to obey God in spirit, in intent, in our hearts, in our thought life, right? And by coveting. And that even in our best efforts, even if we could want to have the best efforts, we know that we cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And it's not because you're not strong enough or you're not uh, you know, smart enough or anything like that. It's because you are incapable. I mean, that's the truth of our experience. I mean, you know this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's the word. You sin because it is your nature, because you are a sinner. Do you see the difference? Are you with me? You know, I know for myself, um, most days, probably every day, yeah, I'm sure every day, uh, I know that I am selfish and that experientially, it is obvious to me that my heart's natural inclination is toward evil and away from God. I mean, I know this to be true in my own life. Um, Because our, our will is so corrupted that it cannot, on its own, choose good or choose God. 
there are things that you cannot choose to do, even if you were if you were wanting to choose to do it, because your will has been corrupted. It has fallen. Um, this is not a perfect analogy, but you know there are areas in your life that you know that you simply cannot choose to do it because you want to do it, right? So for example, if I had to take the AP physics exam right now, I can't choose to get a five on it. I can't. I, I want that, I can choose to want it, but there's no way that that's gonna happen. I can't right now just choose in my will to run a four minute mile or a five minute mile or any reasonable timed mile, right? I can't. I think four minutes, my goodness. Uh, right? I can't just simply choose to do that. I don't have the will. I don't have the ability to do what I simply want or am willing myself to do. Right? That's the power of sin. That's the power of sin. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, it was helpful for me here. He said that our minds are free to choose. Our minds are free to choose, right? We know this. I can choose uh, an apple pie or chocolate ice cream for dessert. If they're both, like, I can choose. I have that choice. Now, why does my mind choose one over the other? Why do I choose the chocolate ice cream over the apple pie? Because my mind thinks, for a variety of reasons, that one is better than the other, right? For a variety of reasons, I think, that chocolate ice cream is better than the apple pie. That's how we make decisions. So the will is free to choose what the mind thinks is best. We, we understand this. But Edward says the problem is that the mind does not, cannot know what is best. That's the problem. Why? Because you're a sinner. So we go back. And as a sinner, as a mind that's been corrupted, you cannot freely choose God so on the one hand yeah you could choose God you're free to make that choice but apart from God you will not think that God is best you cannot of your own free will because it's been corrupted choose God as the best and even if you thought that God was the best you won't necessarily exercise your freedom to choose God Right? And again, we, we all know this. Think about all the bad decisions you've made knowing that it was a bad decision. Why, do you, why would you do that? Why do you eat a pint of ice cream and a whole bag of potato chips last night when you know that that is bad? I'm not saying I did it. I'm just saying as an example. Right? You know that that is a bad decision. Your mind tells you this is not a good idea. And yet you still do it. Why? Why is there no will to make you do what is best for yourself? Even when it's best for yourself, when it's a purely selfish thing, why is it that you cannot do what is best? It's because our wills have been... And that's the explanation uh, that we are given. The Heidelberg Catechism says that apart from God, we have a natural tendency to hate God and neighbor. Do you believe that? I mean, is that something that is true for yourself? I mean, I don't know if you think that or not. I mean, do you think that apart from God, 
that there's a natural tendency to hate God and neighbor. You're not sure? I know it so well in my own heart. I mean, I know this as deeply as I know anything else in life. That apart from God, my tendency is always toward evil. Away from God and hating people. I mean, I know this to be so true in my life. Um, You know, the Apostle Paul once wrote about his life, later in his life, I am the worst of sinners. And I am beginning to understand what he meant by that. Like, of course, he wasn't the worst of sinners, right? And I know I'm not either, but I understand that the power, the sticky power of sin in my life. And, you know, I have to pray every day, every day, I have to say, God, please give me grace so that I don't hate people and so that I don't turn away from you. I mean, it is a daily fight with the evil inclination of my heart. It really is. And as I get older, it's become, I, I, I just realize it more and more, that that is my tendency. Because, you know, it's so easy, it's so much easier to simply point out the sins of others and say, you know, that's the problem with humanity. It's those people who are evil, and if we just get rid of those people, then, you know, our society would be better, right? Uh, I'm sure you've, you've been... Some of you probably uh, have been following the stories this week, two just you know, horrific stories. Uh, one uh, you know, about Larry Nasser and, and the unspeakable horrors he, he committed on those hundreds of young girls. Um, and also about that California couple with their uh, 13 children that they just this, you know, tortured and beat um, for, for decades. I mean, like when I read some of these stories and some of these details come out, I, I can't comprehend it. Like, I don't understand how, as a parent, you can do that to your own kids. Like, it, it's, there's something about that that, at a level, I just cannot understand. And I can say, you know, man, that is evil. That is evil. And compare myself to them and think, you know, at least I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm not that bad. And I can excuse then myself for my own sort of bouts of anger or, or thoughts of hate and lie to myself and say, you know, you know, but I'm pretty good, so I'm okay. And this is where the word of God condemns me even further with those thoughts. Right? And really, you and I, we, we probably have a different sense of exactly what is right and what is wrong. But again, I think if we, if we just are honest with ourselves, we know that we are not who people think we are. We are not the way we sort of try to project ourselves to others. And we know in our own quiet moments, when we look at ourselves, we are not who we think we want to be. We're far from it, right? If you and I, if we cannot be the kind of person that lives up to even my own expectations. Right? If I can't even live up to this sort of the standard that I've set for myself, right? If, I, if I'm making excuses for my failures for myself, how could I possibly then live up to the expectations and the standards that God has? No one can. 
not one. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his uh, book, The Gulag Archipelago, wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Right? Get rid of all those evil people. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I know it's a cliche, but the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Your heart and mine. And the Bible says, not one of us is capable of keeping the law of God because of the fall. Let me close with this. Um, one of my favorite movies growing up was uh, Ben-Hur. Uh, not the recent remake. I haven't seen that one. I heard it was bad. Um, but the old one with Charlton Heston, the good one. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a story about, uh, about a Jewish man who is condemned to row until he dies in a Roman galley for an accidental assassination attempt on a, on a Roman. And so um, I think it's near the middle of the movie, uh, he's, he's rowing. Uh, the ship that he's rowing in gets into a battle, and the ship sinks. And he and the captain of the boat the Roman tribune, Quintus Arius, are surviving on a piece of plank. The two of them, they're just floating on this little piece of plank. And uh, it's the middle of the sea. And I just, you know, that is a perfect illustration of our condition, right? One is a Jew, one is a Roman. In that moment, their nationality, their ethnicity, it's meaningless, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter that one is a slave and condemned to die and the other is a, you know, an accomplished tribune. Their fortune, their social standing doesn't make a bit of difference in that particular moment. It doesn't matter that one knows how to row and the other one knows how to you know, sail a ship and had those battle strategies. Your knowledge, your intelligence, your skill set matters zero. It doesn't matter whatever religious practices that they did, whatever rituals they followed, whatever gods they prayed to at that particular moment. It amounts to nothing. They're just stuck on a piece of tiny little plank. It doesn't matter how much they worked out or how good of a swimmer they are. It doesn't matter. They will float on that plank until they tire and they drown or until the sharks come and eat them. That's their fate. They will die. There is no escape that they can make for themselves. That's our human condition. In that moment, it doesn't help to try to get swimming lessons. It doesn't help to learn how to build a boat. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can despair in that moment. Quintus Arius does. I mean, he, he thinks about suicide. Or, or, you can be rescued. Those are your only options. You can watch the movie to see what happens. As I said, I know this is a bit heavy, maybe more than a bit heavy, but we have to begin here. We're not going to stay here. 
But we have to begin here. There is good news coming and is here, as Paul says, in the middle of our lostness, the righteousness of God is revealed. God is justified. God is redeemed. God has atoned for. God has passed over our sins. And that is our only hope. We cannot keep the law perfectly, but God will and has provided a way. But before we get to that rescue, we have to begin by acknowledging that since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. And so that sets us up for the rescue. The righteousness of God revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, sometimes it is hard to hear the truth about ourselves. Um, But we know that our fallenness, our sinfulness, is not the whole word, is not the whole truth. But God, help us to, to begin here, to recognize, to recognize our need. And even more than, to trust you even more. Because your love and your power is so much more than our brokenness. And so, God, we look to you and we thank you for the rescue that you've made possible in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Um, At this time, uh, we are going to...